Shakespeare's sister from Lighter Than Bombs. This is David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to my world. As I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. Always crossing time, space and genre. This week, as always, we like a special guest. This is the turn of Sally Timms, one-time member, or she could still be the member of the Mekons. I'm never sure, they're always changing lineup. Um, and also, she did lots of exciting solo stuff as well. So I'll be bringing you that interview towards the end of the show. Um, but to kick off the party, as we always like to, I think we're going to play, I think, no, I'm more we will be playing the song that I first heard that uh, made me fall in love with Sally Timms. This is the, collabor- um, the track she did with Mark Armand called This House is a House of Trouble.
The Mekons with Where Were You? And if you ever get a chance, and if you can locate it on the internet somewhere, um, I think it was about 1978, David Bowie did a two or three hour radio special and um, he played sort of various songs. Um, yes, obviously, and did a bit of chat in between, as you do when you're on the radio. And uh, that was the particular song that he played and he particularly liked. And um, it's an amusing two or three hours with Mr. Bowie in fine form as he sort of delved into his record collection, which, um, yes, it is tricky to find, but it is worth tracking down. And before that, we had our special guest. That was Sally Timms with Mark Armand with a track called This House is a House of Trouble, which came out, I do believe, on Abstract Records in about 1986. Um, anyway, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 show. And as I said, this is a Sally Tim special because I caught up with her a long time ago. It was around when they were doing Meekonville, actually. But um, I've only just managed to sort of get it done. So anyway, another song that I bought back in the day, and this isn't the same version, but I still think this is one of the best songs of all time, is Sally Timms and her version of Long Black Veil.
Didn't see that one coming. That's Depeche Mode and Personal Jesus. And one of the reasons, and there's probably more than one, actually there's quite a few that I played that, was that um, Depeche Mode gets mentioned quite a bit with Sally Timms in the interview because of the importance that they had on Mute Records, but she'll explain that a bit later. Plus also that it's an amazing song that got covered by Johnny Cash a few years later, or probably decades. I wasn't paying that much attention, but it's a fantastic song. Check it out. And also do check out Johnny Cash's version. And before that, we had Sadie Timms with Edith Frost, and that was the version of Long Black Veil, vale, which was slightly different to the one that I bought back in the day on Abstract Records. Anyway, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, it's always nice to hear your messages. You can via Twitter or Facebook. Just go to at C86show and I will be there. But um, as I said, this week's special guest is Sally Timms because um, I caught up with her and also John Langford just before they were doing Meconville last summer. But um, for various reasons, it's taken ages to get around to this bit of interview. But anyway, um, but we're making up for it and that's the main thing. Look, another song by Sally Timms. I do believe, I do hear you shout. So look, this is going to be When the Roses Bloom Again.
that's Delta 5, all the way from Leeds, a bit of post-punk music. And that was a track called Mind Your Own Business. And before that, we had Sally Timms with When the Roses Bloom Again. Looking at the time and trying to juggle out what juggle, when to play and what to play. I think I want to play one more track by Sally Timms. This was going to be with John Langford. And this is a track which they covered a David Bowie song, I think probably a tribute a few years ago, Prettiest Star. And then the first part of the interview, which is fascinating. So... Hang on to your hats, dear listener, because this could just change your life. Anyway, take it away, Sally and John. John Langford and the track called Prettiest Star, which obviously was a David Bowie song, I was going to say, from Ziggy Stardust. I'd have to check that out. I'm such a big fan, and yet sometimes my facts can be all over the place, but that's age for you. Anyway, the first part of the interview, and this is um, to do with the single that she did with Mark Armand, which is This House is a House of Trouble, because I'm obsessed with that song. Um, well, I was friends with Mark. My brother was really good friends with him, so I knew Mark and I knew his boyfriend and we he'd had this song sitting around I uh, wanted to record it with um oh my god I can't remember her name Catwoman what's she called oh Eartha Kitt Eartha Kitt oh yes so he wanted to re- he wanted to record it with Eartha Kitt but she'd either said no or he hadn't managed to get in touch with her or I don't know and so I said I would do it and so we did it together and I'd sung I can't remember if I'd sung with him prior to that or if I sang with him afterwards, but I'd sung backup vocals on a couple of things that he'd done for, I I think it was just B-sides, and then he'd sung on um, 
Terence Higgins Trust record that we did, Johnny Johnny Cash covers record. Right. And so, you know, I mean, I hadn't done much singing with Mark, but, you know, This House is a House of Trouble was about the extent of the most of it. I didn't do as good a job as Eartha Kitt would have done, but that's okay. Right, because around the same time, because I also bought this one, the next one, which was the Long Black Veil as well, which came out. Was it also on the same record label? Yeah, I think so, yes. And I, I think, think that was all on abstract. That's right, and, and, and I think John also, John Langford, produced at least one, if not both of those, didn't he? I think he did both of them, yeah. Because he was a very tough. Yes. So before that, you'd obviously, you know, you'd been in the Mekons as well. So how did that relationship form? Well, I may not, I don't know when that, this house of the House of Trouble came out. I may not even have been in the Mekons at that point. I think I joined the Mekons in about 1987. I don't know when this house of the House of Trouble came out, but, um, I don't know, I, I had been hanging around with them in Leeds from being about 20 onwards. Right. And uh, I had a lot of silly bands that went on. We had this all-women band called the Sheehees, which was sort of a joke. And we used to do joke country records on that. And then, um, or just write silly country songs, basically. It was uh, uh, and Lionel Richie covers and whatever nice. we felt like doing. And so I'd sung on a couple of Mekon's records, or I think I sung on one, but I hadn't become a full-time member of the band. And then I think in about 1987, I did start singing live with the band and then became a kind of full-time member after that. Right. Because obviously Leeds was quite a hotbed of anarcho synthless bands, weren't they? Because there was people like Chumbawamba that I remember sort of in the 80s as well, and especially in the 90s, all sort of very part of a of a kind of a particularly anarchist scene. So were you also sort of on those kind of groups as well, or in those kind of scenes? Sort of, but I would say we were sort of parallel to it. I mean, there were a lot of scenes in Leeds. There was goth. Then there was Chumbawamba. There was a there were a few anarchist bands. I would say that there were other areas that may have had more. We were part of more of a kind of socialist area of bands, you know, <laughs> punk bands. There are the socialist bands that fell in with the Gang of Four, and then there were loads of bands that kind of qualified somewhat as that. There were Delta Five, yes, and uh, extending out a bunch of other Leeds bands. Lots and lots of them actually. There were probably hundreds of bands. Because there was also, was it Girls at Our Because there was Girls at Our Best as well, wasn't there, who were probably... There was Girls at Our Best. Uh, you're bringing up names, but yeah. Yes. I definitely remember. And there was, you know, the Sisters of Mercy. Yes. And the March Violets. And so there were all these other bands that kind of came out of different offshoots. And I think all their politics were slightly different, but that was a bit like Leeds at the time anyway, because it was a lot of factions. A very busy and exciting place, Leeds, back in the day. Anyway, look, that's the first part of my interview. I've got another part to come. But before we listen to that, because let's face it, it's fantastically fascinating, I think another track. This is Sally Timms and John Langford, and their song titled Horses. <laughs> Horses, if they'd let me sleep outside at night and not take fright, I would ride the range and never worry. I would disappear into the night. Everybody needs an angel, but here's that devil by my side. Death's head rings upon his fingers Poor boy, hang on the line They'll be drawing straws inside the courtroom As the sudden twilight turns to black Torches burn into the sad eyes On the wrong side of the track Make those horses jump through hoops of flame They won't kick and they won't scream Let the good Lord 
Yes, a little bit of a goth rock there. That's the Sisters of Mercies with a track called Corrosion. And before that, we had Sally Timms and John Langford with a track called Horses. This is David Easter on the C86 show. And this is going to be the second part of the interview with Sally, uh, where we talk about that exciting dynamic of the band and the general longevity and all the things that can go so well and then sometimes become slightly tricky. This is it. Take it away, Sally. That did happen with the Mekons, though, because they did have the tricky second album and they did have problems with the record labels. We constantly had problems in the past. And then, you know, exactly the same thing kind of happened, although I would say the basis for the band was different. The way that people had chosen to get into making music was not to make money or to become famous, but just to do something um, to express themselves, you know, to just go out and make things and, uh, you know, punk rock kind of gave a framework for that along with a kind of leftist uh, ideology, I would say. They all got tied up together. So when the second record came out, I think after that point, a lot of the original members kind of faded away. People were like not into it or there were too many problems or whatever. And so really John, Tom and Kevin were the ones who stayed behind and and started a new, it wasn't a new band, but started doing things differently. They put out a record with drum machines and, you know, the records sound different to the original lineup. And then when the miners' strike started, um, they wanted to do benefits for the miners' strike. So they put together a band that could play the miners' strike benefits. Yeah. And then Steve and Lou came in at that point and Susie. And um, I think that. John and Tom and Kevin had started becoming interested in country music kind of prior to that point. I remember that. And so, and folk music. And so the whole sound of the band kind of took another turn because of the different musicians. And so the kind of ideas of the band stayed the same, but the lineup changed somewhat. And so the band kind of became more what it has been for, what, the last 20 years? Yes. 30 years, 30 years. And so there was a short time when the band was a certain way, but it was also very similar ideas, but the, but the way the band sounded changed. Yeah. Cause looking, when, when new people came in. Because looking back on those kind of um, political periods where lots of people started kind of cooperatives and obviously bands and, and sort of tried to sort of do the right thing and have sort of, you know, uh, I don't know, a certain democracy where everyone has to have a say and and, they, and only things could move forward if everybody was in agreement. Um was quite interesting, but at the same time quite hard works. But obviously with the Mekons, did, how did the sort of workings of the band develop during the period that you were in or from till now? Because, because obviously th- those kind of relationships can be quite tricky or not just, you know, like personal relations, but just moving things forward. Yeah, I think, um, well, I would say that even though there were lots of high ideals about how music and bands were conducted back then, you know, it, it from the outside it may look a certain way, but internally it didn't. And so I suppose some people kind of went by the wayside and some kind of stuck with their ideals, but I'm sure that all of those bands who did would still say there was tons and tons of fights and disappointments and all the things that went along with trying to live a certain way but failing to. Um, and I would say we fell into that category too. You know, we definitely had our moments where there was disagreements and general disappointments. And so what we did was we went through phases, but I think the idea was we would always keep making music because we didn't really care what anyone thought. And so that was kind of the thing that kept the band going. People have always said in the band, you know, if no one listened, it wouldn't really matter. As long as we had the means to make stuff, we would still make it together. And, uh, you know, it becomes more difficult when you have absolutely no money. I can see why people give up. But what we've always done is sort of tailored what we can do to the resources that are available. So we didn't have, like, huge ideas about how we were going to conduct things. They were quite resourceful. So if we're going to make something work, then it has to work so that people get 
as a rule, paid something. You know, no one's losing money, although uh, we're going on this tour of England. I don't really know how that's going to work. It's a sort of glorified holiday. But we definitely are able to make a living while we're working in the United States. And so we're just careful with our resources and, you know, we ask people for help. And so we're able to look at things and we look at projects now and obviously we're much older and we're all doing different things and we live in different continents, which makes it way more difficult to sort anything out. (laughs) And um, we make it work within that time frame. So we just, we don't go on the road all the time. Obviously that would be, that would have long destroyed a band. And that's what does destroy bands after a while, just, putting themselves through this idea of what a band should be, that it has to be out playing live all the time, or you have to sell a certain number of records. And in a lot of ways, we've been lucky because after a while, we found labels who would... We had a very, very long and happy period with Touch and Go in Chicago, where basically they had enough funds to allow us to keep doing what we wanted to do as long as we stayed within a certain budget. And that was very free for us. And then Bloodshot have given us something of the same thing we had the same thing with Blast Burst in England. You know, they were kind of, thank God for Depeche Mode. That's all I can say, you know. I, my admiration for them grows regularly because they basically kept Mute going yes. and Mute were able to fund all these other things that didn't make money. And so it was basically like the Arts Council, but subsidised by Depeche Mode. So. <laughs> yes, yeehaw for Depeche Mode. That's the second and final part of the interview with Sally Timms. A big thank you for giving me the time. I do believe she was in Chicago at that uh, during that interview. And I wasn't, so there you go, the power of television, television, telephones, or something like that, or Skype. Anyway, um, I know what you're thinking, because I've been thinking the same thing, because a bit earlier on in the show, if you've been paying attention, she did a version of When the Roses Bloom Again, which reminded me of one of my favourite artists of all time. Yes, Laura Cantrell. You didn't see that one coming. And so I was thinking, I really want to play something by her. So before the end of the show, I think we should, well, next song, in fact, we're going to play a track which came from the album When the Roses Bloom Again. This is Wait.
I know, we haven't heard anything from Laura Cantrell for absolutely ages. But anyway, that uh, is a track called Wait. And do try and check out some more of her stuff, not just her albums, but she's done a lot of sessions with both John Peel and various live acoustic tri- um, acoustic music that's scattered around the internet in very weird and wonderful places. Not the dark web, obviously, but just, um, yes, I didn't. I was almost going to play a version she did of the New Order song, Love Vigilantly, but I didn't because I thought, oh, I don't know, I prefer that song. Right, that, dear listener, is the end of the show. Thank you ever so much for listening. This has been David Esau. Um, oh, if you want to contact me, you can. Twitter, Facebook, just go to at C86show and I will be there. It's always nice to hear from you if it's all positive and groovy stuff. Otherwise, don't bother. Um, I'm going to leave you with one more song. This is going to be John Langford and also Sally Timms. This is a track called Broken Bottle.
And what I've gained has no name So I'll take my leave once more